Well, it's so good to be with you here tonight uh, on this glorious above 32 degree night. I'm loving it. I have committed in my heart that spring is here. Now, I know in my head it's not. I know according to the calendar and all my previous experience living in Illinois that it is not here. But who's with me? I believe that spring is here. We will will it to be. We will will it to pass. Uh, so thank you for coming inside. Uh, really, uh, this is what I love when it gets above. Anytime it gets above 32 degrees in Chicago, there's always that guy who has to put shorts on to show you that he is here to celebrate. And actually, uh, several of those guys are here tonight, which is so great. It's like, it's above freezing, so I am going to show you my white pasty legs so that you may enjoy all of this. So, uh, so it's great to be with you guys back here tonight. Uh, last week, we had a Super Bowl party at our house. It's a really fun time. And uh, we are kicking off tonight a new series and a look at one specific character in the Bible, uh, the life of Nehemiah, and how we can learn from him and his story, the way that he prayed, the way that he saw the city, and the way that he engaged people. And we will use that as a context of the local church, but it's the way that he engaged believers in God to accomplish extraordinary things in their lifetime, impossible things in their lifetime. And we're going to spend the next three weeks uh, the final you know, Sundays of this month, February, we are going to focus in on this one book of the Bible, this one life, and see if God doesn't start to write a more full and complete and bigger story for our lives. So I'm so glad that you are, are a part of this. I encourage you to uh, stay with us as we go through this journey because it's an exciting story, and I believe that God wants to specifically speak into your life about big things that he wants to do, longs to do, and in fact actually created you to do. And I saw this firsthand, saw a gl- well I didn't see it firsthand, but I saw it on the news firsthand. Uh, this week, pretty historic week, right? It, it, amazing week if you follow the events of what's happened in Egypt. An unbelievably historic event has happened. Unbelievable to see the will of people bring freedom and hopefully democracy, at least to end tyranny in their country. And that, that determination, that will is amazing. And with that, another story that, well, pretty much every other story got buried by Egypt. But one of the stories was of a man, 64-year-old man, who kayaked, did a transatlantic kayak trip. Does anyone else see that or follow that? This, he was either incredibly determined and driven or very high and had no idea... <laughs> where he was or what he was getting into because that's not you don't typically set out to take a kayak on a transatlantic trip especially at 64 years old i don't even know i don't know if i could tomorrow kayak across lake michigan i don't even know if i could kayak across the the pool at my gym i'm not even sure how to do a kayak but this guy at 64 years old kayak made a transatlantic trip in a kayak which is no small thing. And it got me thinking about what we're looking at in the life of Nehemiah, specifically what we're going to talk about tonight, and thinking about you and me. And that question began to stir me. Okay, so when I'm 64, what's one like, big thing that I want to say that I've done? Because like, this guy gets to, you know he's already telling his grandkids, and he's going to make his grandkids tell their grandkids that he did a transatlantic kayak trip. And that's, that's, he's got a story to tell now. Every party he goes to, hi, my name's Ken. You know I travel the Atlantic in a kayak. That's what he's going to lead in with every time he meets someone, right? That's his status update on Facebook forever now, okay? So here's what I want you to think about. If you could do one big thing in your life, maybe you've already thought about this, you had a desire to do like a big thing like that, a great thing like that, 
what would it be? And I want you to, for accountability, because we're going to actually hold you to do this as much as we can. Well, I want you to tell the person next to you what's one really big thing that you would like to do in your lifetime. Maybe it's been on a list. Maybe you have a formalized a bucket list, if you will, of things you want to do. But what's a big thing that you want to do before you turn 64? Or if you've already turned 64, I want you to turn 84. So here's what we're going to do. Turn to the person next to you, find out their name, and find out one big thing that they want to do in their lifetime. You have a minute and 17 seconds, so do not waste time. Go for it. All right. All right, you guys have some big plans, some big goals in your life. This is good. How many of you, for you, that was, uh, that was an easy question to answer, just by show of hands. Like, you already know a big thing you want to do in your life. Okay, uh, how many of you, that was a tough one to answer? Like, gosh, I don't, I, I don't know. Like, awesome. Okay, so for a lot of us, you know, it, it's kind of like, this is a big thing. Like, I don't, I, I don't know. I, I, I know that I want to do something big with my life. I know that I want my life to count for something. But typically, lots of times, we don't know what that is. We don't know what that is. And sometimes it's something as crazy or grand as kayaking transatlantic trip in a kayak. Sometimes it's as significant as mending a relationship that's been broken. Maybe a relationship within your family, someone that you were once close to. Sometimes it's as big as getting healthy and changing some things about your diet, your life. It can be all kinds of different things. But for so many of us, we have a hard time thinking about that big thing we want to do. And then when we do... For even more of us, it's so hard for us to accomplish it, to actually see it happen. Why? Why is that? Why is it that it's so difficult for us to have a big vision for our life? And then when we do have a big vision, for many of us, it just becomes a dream. And the story we're going to look at tonight, this is more than a dream. It's a burden. It's a burden that leads someone to pray ridiculously big prayers for a big vision that God has given him. And when God gives you a vision, when God gives you a purpose, when it is God-driven, when it is God-sized, it changes. It changes the priorities. It changes things in your life, or at least it can. And so if you have a Bible, I want you to open up to Nehemiah chapter 1. We're going to start right at the beginning of the story. I want to give you a little context. This is Nehemiah Uh, He is a literally insignificant character, if not for the events that we're about to read about. He comes from no royal lineage. There's nothing significant about him or his family or even where he was at this point in his life to draw attention to his story other than the vision that he had for his life and the way that he prayed big about that vision. So Nehemiah is honestly kind of an insignificant, nobody sort of place. He uh, is far, far, so let's set some context. This is many, many, many years ago right around 445 B.C. So this is after the time of Moses, Ten Commandments, that whole thing, after the life of King David and the great reign of Israel. So Israel, as a people, as a nation, had a height in its story. This is after that. Okay, this is post that, is where we find Nehemiah in his story. In fact, uh, just so you understand kind of contextually what was going on, the people of Israel and the city of Jerusalem were literally in shambles. Literally in shambles. At this point, that kingdom, that power had been conquered and divided several times. In fact, that, uh, one of those times was in 587 BC. The Babylonians invaded Judah and they destroyed Jerusalem and they demolished 
the temple. And so it had already been decimated as a city, and the will and the spirit of the people had already been greatly defeated. But then several years later, uh, King Cyrus uh, says that he, can, he will allow Israelites, who they've actually taken as slaves and prisoners, he's allowing Israelites to go back in and rebuild the city. And so right, you know, about uh, you know, a hundred or so years later is where we find Nehemiah after people had been allowed to go back to the city of Jerusalem and restore. And they actually did. They began to rebuild the city. They rebuilt the temple. But something hadn't switched in their heart. And the people turned their hearts, turned their lives from God. So you have the city who was on, and this people who were on the rise, then defeated, decimated, destroyed, and the people, and literally the city of Jerusalem in ruins, gets rebuilt. There's hope maybe it's going to happen again. And then just decimated. If, if you're trying to understand the emotional intensity of that, just for a second, just, just think about the Cubs. For like one second, you will understand the heart of the people of Israel, right? It's like, oh, is it? Uh, maybe next year. Oh, we're going to be a great people again. Uh, maybe next year. And so that's exactly what has sort of been going on. And this is where we find Nehemiah. The city is now completely in ruins. The temple is completely destroyed. It is a wreck. And the will of the people, emotionally, spiritually, and morally, are completely distraught. In fact, many have left Israel. Nehemiah himself was in exile. He was actually taken to a foreign land. He was in the court of one of the rulers that had actually destroyed Israel. And he was working. He had a government job. He was working for the king in a faraway land. And so this is the context that we get for where Nehemiah starts off. Nehemiah was 765 miles away from Jerusalem. And in that world, you know, there wasn't a lot of planes and, 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 and trains and that sort of thing. That's a long distance away. And so when Nehemiah is in this foreign land, he is uh, visited by his brother and some of their friends. And they come back, and Nehemiah, all he wants to know is, tell me about Jerusalem. Because they had just been to Jerusalem and to Judah and that land that had been so destroyed. And he says, tell me about him, tell me about him, tell me about him. And this is where our story picks up, okay? So you have to understand there's a context, there's a, a people that have been literally just been decimated and destroyed, and the city itself and the people themselves are in ruins, and Nehemiah wants some good news. And if you have a Bible, Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 4, you can see exactly what happens. They tell Nehemiah that things aren't so good. <laughs> Jump down a little bit, down to verse 4. When Nehemiah heard these things, he heard that the people were in ruins, the city was in shambles. He sat down and did what? And wept. Now he had already known, he had already heard, but when he got the news firsthand, that yes, everything you thought about this city, about its people, about this once great nation is completely in ruins, he sits down and he weeps for some days, it says, for a while. He mourned and fasted and prayed to God, how could this happen? Now keep in mind, Nehemiah is serving as the cupbearer to a foreign king, 765 miles away from the city of Jerusalem. So this is an insignificant person in a faraway land. He hears the news about his people, his city. He knows that there's a greater story at play there about a covenant, a promise that God had made with these people and how they had shattered it and broken it again and again and again. He is so broken by that that he weeps and mourns. But he still has to go to work. He still has to go back and serve the king. And he actually worked as a cupbearer for the king. He was the king's cupbearer, so we don't have that in our culture. But he would taste the wine before the king 
would taste it just in case someone poisoned it, which is a great job to have. A lot of upward mobility in that job. And so, you know, that's how you'd know if the wine had been poisoned by someone who wanted to kill the king because there'd be a dead cupbearer on the ground. You say, hey, king, maybe you should pass on that one. So you might want to try the white. So, uh, so this is what he does. He has to go into work, and he, and he knows that he has to continue on his responsibility. So he prays out and he calls out to God, knowing that his life has to keep moving forward, but God is stirring something deeper inside of him. Verse 5, he says this, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. So he's calling out to God now, God, you are a promise-keeping God. You have never let us down. And he says these words, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. Nehemiah does something very interesting. He is calling out to God in the midst of a foreign land, a seemingly insignificant person, is beseeching, is begging God. And he says this, I confess the sins of the Israelites, including myself and including my ancestral family. We have sinned and committed sin against you. So he is literally saying, God, I understand this. I understand the story. I know the story. We have broken our promise with you. You have never broken your promise of love with us, but we have broken our promise with you and our city and our people, our story lie in ruin. And he's confessing. He is confessing not only for himself, but literally for the sins of a nation. That's how deep this burden is going inside of Nehemiah. And then he does something really, really big. This is verse 11, chapter 1, verse 11. After confessing his sin, his nation's sin, he says, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering or honoring your name. Listen to what he says. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. In the next verse, we know who this man is because Nehemiah says it very clearly. He gives us his job description. I was cupbearer to the king, in case you missed it. So he prays out to God, God, hear me, hear me, hear me. God, hear me. I know we have sinned. I know we have failed. We have broken our promise with you. You have never broken your promise of love with us. But hear me now, God. Give me success in the face of this opposing foreign king whom I happen to be on the payroll of because I'm the cupbearer to the king. This is a very important verse that stands alone in the story because what Nehemiah is showing us that what little influence he had in his life, he was willing to bet it all on God. What little position, what little relational connections, what little asset this slave had in a foreign world 765 miles away from a city in ruin, he says, I will put all of that on the line for you, God. I'm the cupbearer to the king. Use whatever I have right now and give me success in the presence of this man who so happens to be the king, the most powerful person in this known world. That is a big, bold prayer. God, leverage the relationships I have. God, leverage the influence I have. So often, for me, when I pray, when I get up the nerve to pray big things to God, it is me asking him to do things for me. I want God to do miracles, and typically I want him to do them for me. 
Oh God, I completely forgot to pay their water bill. Oh God, make there be money in the account. Oh God, God, I completely screwed this up. Would you help then this, I said something so stupid, God, would you help this person not be so mad at me? Oh, God, would you help me? I, I, and maybe this is your prayer. God, I, I, I don't have a job. It's been a while. God, would you move on my behalf? It's not a bad thing, but so often when we pray big prayers, when we expect miracles of God, we expect him to do them for us. But Nehemiah does something very different. He asked God to do big things through him. Very different. God, I'm not asking you to do this for me. I'm asking you to do this through me. I'm the cupbearer to the king. What influence do I have? What do I have to hold on to, God, in this world? But I will leverage it all if you will use me, not for me, through me, God, in the presence of the most powerful man in that world. I'll leverage everything I have. And this is what happens. Very, very interesting story. Chapter 2. Jump up to chapter 2. Verse 2, Nehemiah still got like, he still got black eyes from crying. He's just sad and depressed. Probably got snot coming out of his nose. And he still has to go to work, right? This deep burden, which is becoming a big vision for his life. But he still has to go to work. Still got to go sip some Shiraz. So he goes in and the king notices that he's depressed, that he's sad. So the king says in verse 2, why does your face look so sad when you're not sick? Why do you look so sad if you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. It's very sweet of the king to notice that. He looks at Nehemiah and can see that this is a man who's been fasting and mourning and weeping and calling out to God for days. And he sees it on his face. And when you're the king and you have that much power, you're not really asking that question to have it be answered. It's a little more rhetorical, like, Please turn that frown upside down in my presence. You know, like that kind of thing. Why are you so sad? What's going on? And listen to what Nehemiah says. I was very much afraid. Pause. I was very much afraid. Because now he's in the presence of the most powerful man in that foreign world. And the king has called him out. Why are you sad? Why are you crying? Why are you weeping? I was very much afraid. But he had been praying big prayers that God would not do things for him but through him. And so look what Nehemiah does. He says, he starts off strong. May the king live forever. Like he gives like, he just does, starts off like, king, okay, you're cool, we're good, all right, okay. King's awesome, here's the deal. Why shouldn't I be sad when my, look at what he says, why should my face not look sad when the city of my ancestors are buried and lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Nehemiah has taken a huge risk here. The king asked a question which probably wasn't meant to be answered. It was probably more of a directive, turn your face around, stop being so sad in my presence, wipe your nose for God's sake, get someone, get him a handkerchief, someone please. And yet Nehemiah takes this opportunity and says, okay, listen, king, here's the deal. Here's why I'm sad. My city, my people lie in ruins, destroyed. Now, why should this king care? Why would he care? But look at his response in chapter 2, verse 4. The king said to me, what is it you want? Now this is a pivotal turning point in the story. Nehemiah says, look, here's why I'm sad. My people, my city lie in ruins. And the king looks him square in the eye. This is a nobody. Cupbearer is one of the lowest positions you can have in the royal court. But he looks at him and he says, what is it that you want? What is is it that you want? Now, there's a lot of things that Nehemiah could have answered with in that moment. He could have asked for a leave of absence. 
king, can you just give me, a, can I have a couple days to pull myself together? Really, this is tough. He could have asked the king, honestly, king, can you, can you talk to some people? Do you know anyone over there? Like, do you have connections? Can you do something? The king asks, what do you want? And Nehemiah answered so clearly and so quickly that it reveals that he already had a plan in mind. That he had been praying big and planning big. And look at what it says. This is continuing on, verse 4, and then into verse 5. Nehemiah is not an idiot. He prayed to God of heaven. Okay, 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 here we go, here we go, here we go. Very quick prayer. Verse 5, and I answered the king. If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. So he could have asked for a leave of absence to just kind of go and pull himself together. What he says to the king is, King, here's what I want you to do. I want you to excuse me from my responsibilities. I want you actually to send me back to the place where I'm from, where my heart, this burden is growing for, this vision has grown for. I want you to send me back there. And if we were to read on, and we're going to look a little bit at this next week, he not only does that, the king is sitting there with the queen going, okay, that's a little bold. Again, I don't know if it was a rhetorical question or not, but Nehemiah took the liberty to answer it. Nehemiah goes on, as we'll see as we look at next week, to say, look, not only do I want you to send me there, um, can you pay for a lot of this? And he basically asked the king to fund the rebuilding efforts of the city of Jerusalem, a city that this king's ancestors helped to destroy. Nehemiah has big boldness because he has prayed big prayers to God that came from a big vision that God had given him. It's amazing to see in that moment what happened, what came from a burden which became a vision which led to big prayers and a very big ask of the most powerful man in his world. And the king grants it to him. And over the next two weeks, we're going to look at how Nehemiah executes the vision that God had given him. But before we look at that, I think we need to stop for a second and just think about our own lives for a minute. Think back to the big things we want to do in our life and then look at something like this. When someone says, can you send me, king, back to my former city so I can rebuild this city? That is a big thing. And that story should move somewhere inside of you. It should move something inside of you when you hear it. Because this is no ordinary small story. This is a person with big faith who prayed big prayer spurred from a big vision by God. And we love stories like that. We love hearing stories like that, right? I mean, like, and they're, like, anytime, like, there's a ton of them in the Bible. Put the Bible on pause for a second. Like, you watch Braveheart whenever it comes on on TBS, and, like, you watch that, and just, like, guy, girl, doesn't matter if, like, you get fired up, don't you? You're like, oh, man, this is, yeah, or whatever your thing is, whether it's Gladiator or whatever your movie is. If you saw the king's speech and you watch it, you go, this is amazing. Like, this small, insignificant person had massive historic effect through their life, through big, bold choices that they made. It should stir something deep inside of you, because all of us want to live big lives. No one wants to live a small life. You have a desire that I believe is put inside of you by God to do something significant with the one and only life you have. We talked about this a few weeks back. That God actually has poured big vision into your life. That churning, that turning, that desire inside of you is put there by God. But so often what happens, at least for me, maybe for you, 
is we silence it and we numb that with small things. That God has actually poured big capacity for big vision in your life and we drown it out, we smother it, we smolder that fire with small things. Small things, lots and lots and lots of small things. Not bad things, small things, small things. And there's a tension that grows inside of us because we have big desires that get awakened when we hear stories like this, that get awakened when we see movies or read books, hear stories about even people who kayak at 64 years old on transatlantic. That stirs something and you go, oh, I want to do something significant. But so often it gets lost. It gets lost behind so many small, small things. We settle for small comforts, small comforts, small relationships, small conversation. And lots of times we settle for small prayers. I know in a room like this, we have people all over the spiritual spectrum, people who say that they are in relationship with God, have been in relationship with God for a long time, people who are checking all that out. But I know, at least I'll be honest about myself, many, many, many times, I spend a significant amount of my time praying for small things, small things. When we look back to Nehemiah's prayer, it starts with saying, oh, great and powerful God, amazing, great, big, gigantic God. And he goes into a very big prayer. But so often, why don't my prayers sound like that? My prayers so often are, God, if you could just kind of help me out of this jam, that would be awesome. God, we're really tight this month financially. If you could just help us out, that would be great. God, I really would love for you to provide me an opportunity to do this. Not bad things. Not bad things. Not bad things. But so often they're small things. Small things. Small things. When God has created you for so much more, we settle for such small things. And here's the amazing thing that happens. The smaller the vision for our life, the smaller our life becomes. The smaller our life becomes, the smaller our prayers become. Small life, small prayers. Because if you think about it, if all I'm worried about is just sort of like, God, I don't know, if you could just help me out with this thing tomorrow, and God, if you can kind of help me out of this jam over here, and God, if you can sort of make this happen over here, I want to find someone, God, maybe in my lifetime, like before I die, it'd be nice to be married. I don't know how you'd get married after you die, but God, that would be nice. Like, God, if you could just help me out of it. Again, not bad things at all. In fact, God is so great and so good, he cares about every one of those small things. The smaller the vision for our life, the smaller our lives become. The smaller our lives become, the smaller our prayers become. And we find our time with God relegated to asking him to bless meals. Not a bad thing. I'm just saying sometimes some of the stuff you pray over, there's not even God himself can help you with that. Small prayers. God, get us out of this jam. God, get me out of this thing. God, help this to happen. God, will you do this small thing for me? And all the while, God is inviting you and, in fact, has created you for something so much bigger. So much bigger. We see this in the life of Nehemiah. Big prayers. Big prayers. Big prayers. Change you. Big prayers change things, actually, around you. Big prayers do. Big prayers that are actually bigger than you. Big prayers that are bigger than you. Big prayers that, like Nehemiah, say, God, you are the one who is great. Will you use me? Do this through me. 
big prayers are bigger than you, and they're usually not all about you. They're usually for others. God, would you do this through me for them? Big prayers, lots of times, start with deep burdens, deep burdens inside of you. You look at something and it is just not right and everything in your guts goes, someone has to do something about that. And so for those of you who are in relationship with God, it is a big prayer. God, not will you solve that problem, but God, will you use me to be a part of this deep burden that I have? Bill Hybels, pastor at Willow Creek Community Church, calls these holy discontents. It is a holy discontent. Like you look at something in the world, you look at poverty in our city, and you go, no, this is not okay. It's not okay that we would drive past, walk past, literally look over these individuals whom God has created. Not okay. You look at something that is going on like child trafficking, sex trafficking. You go, no, this is not okay. Who is going to do something about this? Who is going to step into this gap for them? You look around our city, the the public school systems in our city. You go, no, this is not okay. Who is going to do something about this? And so many times those questions of who is going to do something about this, God is actually looking right back to you and say, you, maybe. It's you, this deep burden, this holy discontent that you have. I want to use you for something much bigger than you had planned or expected for your life. What would that be? As you think about your life, you reflect on your life, what are some of those big things, those deep burdens that you look at and go, no, I lose sleep over this when I think about this. I get, I, I, I get riled up. You start talking to me about this, and the burden runs so deep in me, I can't stop. What might that be for you in your life? For Nehemiah, it was his city. It was his people, 765 miles away. It was so deep that he mourned and fasted and prayed big prayers to a big God to use him to do something in his lifetime. And that big prayer, those big prayers that Elijah prayed, or that, that Nehemiah prayed, Elijah's our son, uh, that he's also in the Bible too. Um, those big prayers that Nehemiah prayed led to, as we're going to look over the next two weeks, a big life. Because that's the crazy thing. Small lives oftentimes lead to small prayers, but big prayers actually lead to big lives. So oftentimes, it's our small vision for our life that leads to small prayers. But when we pray big prayers to a big God to use us, our life, our priorities, our choices, our actions begin to change and get much bigger than just us. They get much bigger than just the small things that we so often settle for. And so I ask you, What would that look like for you? What is that big thing that you cannot stop thinking about? That you've wondered if maybe God might use you to be a part of. And I'll just tell you quickly, this last year and a half, I have never lived bigger in my life. I can tell you that because that sounds great for the last 18 months. Just rewind every other year before that because those were not big years. Many of those years, most of those years, were small years filled with small prayers. 
But over the course of starting this church, the team of people who've started this, God has given me and those of us around this church a big vision. We spent nine months walking around this building praying big prayers that God would provide a way for us to meet in this space that you sit in right now. We prayed big prayers and God answered even bigger than we could possibly pray. When the the folks that we built a relationship with who own this building said that they would give it to us rent-free for two years. That's a bigger prayer than even our big prayer. We prayed that God would provide 50 cents a square foot for our offer. God's like, I can do you one better. Free. That's a big prayer that has now literally changed the way that I live and the way that I approach God. I want to tell you that there are people that over the last 18 months that I have prayed big prayers that God would actually use me Use me to create, to be a part of starting a church that they would want to come to. These are friends that I love deeply, who aren't really church-going folk. Family members who I care for that live in the city, live in this area, who haven't really found a church home. And I'm seeing, I am seeing God answer those prayers in bigger ways than I even thought possible. I began praying 18 months ago that God would allow me to have a relationship with two very specific guys that kind of run some big businesses here in Chicago, big influential cats. And I just began praying for them literally by name, having no way of ever possibly knowing that we'd ever have an opportunity to even bump into each other. I'm telling you, I'm seeing God is literally using me to build a friendship with both of them. I can like call them friends now. Now again, You may hear that go, wow, that's so awesome for you. It has very little to do with me. It has to do with big prayers of God. I'm going to be incredibly specific here. Here's their names. God, I'm going to be so big that we're going to put a dollar amount. I'm going to pray, God, that you would use over the last 18 months the way that God has used me and and others on our team to raise significant amounts of funds to help fund this renovation, to help get this church started. And there's still a lot more to go. And that God has used me to do that only comes from a big vision that God has given me that started as a deep burden for this city, that there are not enough transformational churches in this city. So God, would you use me to be a part of that? God, would you use our friends? God, would you use me in my lifetime to start a church in the city that I love for friends and family that I love, for people that I don't even know that have great influence in the city and around the world, that are now becoming friends and friends of this church. Why, after what God has done in my life over the last 18 months, would I settle for anything small? God has created you for a big life. And that so often starts by praying big, bold, uncomfortably specific prayers to God. Not just for you, but through you. And so what we want to do right now is create space for you to do just that. We want to give some space for you to think about, okay, God, what would be a big prayer, a big prayer, that even as you pray it, it makes you uncomfortable. Like you're looking to give God an out somehow. Like, God, okay, God, this is really big. I don't even know if you can do this, but God, I want to pray this very specific thing. It may be for someone that you love that is very far from God. And the thought of them ever being in a relationship with God To you, you've already given up hope on. But that may be the biggest prayer that you can begin to pray right now. God, would you use me in this relationship? Through me in this relationship. 
It may be that God has put a deep burden for something in our city that is so broken. We're going to talk about this next week. That is wrong. It is not right. It actually breaks the heart of God. And you have tiptoed around this because it seems so big that you don't know how you can do it. Nehemiah didn't know exactly how he was going to do this, but he started by praying a big prayer to God. We want to give you space to do that tonight. It may be something that's going on in the world that you see. You go, no, this is not right. This is a holy discontent. Someone's got to do something. And God is going, how about you? You start by praying a big prayer to me. These are not just for you. These are prayers through you. And the way we want to do that is we want the foundations of our church to be built on those kind of prayers. They already are. And they continue to be. If we could tell you guys, Jeannie's going to talk about the way that the city of Chicago is moving on behalf of our church is unprecedented. We did not expect this, but I'm going to tell you, we prayed big prayers that they would. Big prayers. And so we want to give you the space to do that tonight. And we've actually written uh, Nehemiah 1 verse 5 on these posts that you see, the vertical posts that you see around our church. And for the next few moments, we want to give you some time to go and to write out a big prayer to God. And we're going to leave them up. We're going to leave them up. And I would encourage you to be specific and big and bold and incredibly, I mean, let these be very big prayers to God. Be very clear. And we encourage every one of you who's, who prays, who's in a relationship with God, to go and find your way to a post over the next few minutes and write out a prayer to God. And ask a great and good God to move on your behalf through you in your lifetime. And let's see if praying these big prayers don't begin to start to lead to some big lives, some big things in our city through our church. So I'm going to pray over you right now. I want you to think about what that prayer might be. And that I would encourage you in boldness as an act of response to God, that you go right to one of those posts, you grab a pen, and you start writing out a very big prayer. Let this be your godly graffiti, okay? In my neighborhood, we got this kind of stuff all over the place, usually not pointing back to God. In this room, we are going to pray big prayers to God and let them stand as a reminder to us every time we gather in here that God has created us for something bigger in the small things of our life, okay? Let me pray over you right now. You think about what that might be. God, thank you so much for your love for us, that Nehemiah got it right. You have never broken your promise of love with us. And God, we look at our lives and say, who am I? Who am I, God? What, what could possibly be done through me? And I have no doubt, God, that Nehemiah felt the same way. Here he is, a foreigner, as a cupbearer to the king. What God could you possibly do through him? And yet, here we are, 2,500 years later, telling his story. God, we want to see you do big things through us, through our lives, through this church, in this city, and in this world, God. In our lifetime, we don't want to settle for small. We pray big and bold and specific and uncomfortable prayers to you because we believe that you are the only one who can, God, that you can. So God, hear these prayers. Move on our behalf. Use us, God. Use this church. We pray. Amen.